You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. My journey has always been one of being in these spaces of religion and then being like, but that doesn't make sense. And I don't understand why this works. Um, So often um, what struck me was the fact that evangelicalism claims to be good news, right? It claims to bring a space where people find freedom. It talks in the gospel text about people being released from things, captives being let free. And yet my experience of evangelicalism and I'm gonna take a wild guess and say probably most of the people's experience in this room with evangelicalism is not that, right? Yeah, yeah, damn it. Um, So, as I was going on my faith journey and growing up in evangelicalism, I also have always been a questioner, as I said. So on the side, I would read things like Madeline Langle. Um, who's acceptable in evangelicalism, depending on which pocket you get into, because she wrote um, Wind in the Door, and she wrote A Wrinkle in Time, and so unless you have parents who are really like, no angels and no fantasy, you could read Madeline Lingle. You could read C.S. Lewis, right? Yeah? Okay. Um, I mean, there are definitely pockets of evangelicalism where Lewis was not okay, because there's a witch which is a whole, I mean, I've got a side project on witchcraft, so if you're interested in talking about new paganism and witchcraft, we can talk about that later. Um, But for the most part, these stories, which invite us to broader notions of freedom, um, were something that I had in the midst of this very narrow construction of what it is to be free and what it is to be free. And then I got to high school, and a lot of my friends were gay because I was a theater kid. Um, and a lot of my friends were feminist. And so I started reading um, subversively feminist texts, mostly through music. So I grew up in the 90s, so there was a lot of Ani DeFranco and Riot Girl and um, things like Seven Year Bitch. So I had these little tapes shoved in pockets and didn't really let my parents know what I was listening to because when I did play my mom on Franco, she was like, well, she sounds okay. And I agree with some of what she's saying, but she swears a lot. Um, so as I kind of moved into this, I started to encounter people like, um, oh my gosh, see, this is the problem. When I'm, I can think of somebody's name until I have to come up with it. Um, the author of Color Purple, Alice Walker. So I started to encounter womanist theologians and people like Alice Walker, who offered notions of feminism that were really rooted in this idea that everybody needed to move forward, um, that you couldn't have freedom if some people were still not free. And that really kicked into gear when I started reading the work of Audre Lorde. Audre Lorde is a queer um, black scholar who um, wrote in the 70s and 80s. She died of cancer, I think in the mid-80s. And one of her books is called Sister Outsider. And in it, she has the statement, I am not free while any woman is unfree, even when her shackles are different from my own. 
And that really informed kind of my trajectory of understanding of what feminism is because white feminism, which is a lot of what we get in first wave, if you've heard that term, first wave feminism. First wave feminism is early 60s. It's all the women who are coming out and just want to be equal with men. So they just want to be able to be upfront or lead or have a position in which they're not being demeaned by. And then we get into second wave feminism, um, which is late 70s. So we've gone through the women's movement, and now there's women who are like, but I want to stay at home, and I want the freedom to stay at home. Or I want to make choices like I'm raising my kids, but I'm homeschooling my kids because I want to raise them with um, away from patriarchy and away from power structures where they're told, especially if they're women, that they do not have power to lead. So that's second wave feminism. And then we get into third wave feminism. Um, and third wave feminism is this notion that, going back to the Audre Lorde quote, that we cannot be free if all of us are not free. If we are still bound by notions of power and um, patriarchy and control and dynamics where I might be able to speak up front, but my friend Tamisha can't, or, um, my friend Jade, who's a transgender woman of color, can't, then I'm not, I, I'm not free, because Jade's not free, right? So that's kind of the trajectory of feminism. I know I'm kind of jumping around. Um, but white feminism is the strain of feminism that comes out of first wave feminism, and it doesn't deal with those intersections. It doesn't deal with intersectionality. Intersectionality is a phrase coined by um, black activist and legal scholar Kim Crenshaw in 1989 on a legal paper in which she talked about the fact that for black women, they were both oppressed within the patriarchal structures of anti-racism work and they were oppressed within the structures of white feminism because neither one of those spaces held for their unique position or positionality about what happens for them in both of those spaces where they're not male and they're not white. So they don't have the privilege of either one. Now that definition is not specifically linked to, that's where the origin of the term intersectionality comes, but intersectionality now, as we talk about it from an academic standpoint, is this notion that people come with varying places in which they experience lack of freedom or oppression, right? where a, um, my friend Jade, who's a brown um, transgender female Filipino, has different positionality in the culture than I do as a white cis woman. Does that make sense? Cis meaning non-transgender, right? Um, and so a lot of the work that I do focuses on this notion of intersectionality that we can't talk about in a post-evangelical context why people are leaving evangelicalism without talking about how their bodies being white or their bodies being gay or their bodies being brown or their bodies being transgender intersect with the fact that they might have grown up poor and they might have grown up in the inner city or they might have grown up as a person of color with money but they're gay. So that's what we talk about when we talk about intersectionality and how these things kind of work together. Does that make sense? So, 
Um, a lot of the work that I'm doing is looking at those places, looking at those whys and hows, because, going back to Lord, often what has happened in the history of scholarship of feminism is that we have people like Mary Daly. Anybody heard of Mary Daly? Aaron's heard of Mary Daly. Okay, so Mary Daly is a feminist scholar who taught at Boston College, and she coined the phrase, which you may have heard, that if, male, if God is male, then male is God. Anybody heard that? Yeah. So the essence of Mary Daly's statement is that if we represent the notion of God as one gender or one race or uh, concept, right? So you could also switch it and say, if God is white, if God is white, then white is God, right? Really hits to the fact that um, the ways in which God has been constructed throughout history is often very narrow and often only serves the people who are in positions of power, right? This being true of Mary Daly as well. So Mary Daly's work is all on feminism and ecofeminism, but her space is really coming out of white feminism. It's really coming out of this notion of prioritizing her experience as a white woman, a white queer woman in spaces. So, um, going back to Audre Lorde, Audre Lorde has a famous letter in which she writes Mary Daly after reading Mary Daly's um, text, Eco slash Gynofeminism. And in this text, she, she compliments Daly. She does this really amazing thing that I think some of the strongest activists and scholars and people who are trying to do work calling people to be better in their fields do. She comes through and she says, you're doing great and I have appreciated so much that you've had to offer, but I want to offer you something else. I want to offer you a critique. And she says to Daly, um, where is it? She says to Daly that, um, in her work, she's prioritizing white deities. And not only that, she's doing what white feminists have done since the beginning of white feminism, which is use the experiences of black women without naming them and honoring them, and only using their experiences of oppression. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why intersectional feminism is so important is that it's really easy to only speak from your position. It's really easy for me to come up here and be speaking from my position of being a white woman who grew up in evangelicalism and has the privilege and the power that comes from that position. But what I get to do, because I have some really amazing friends, is sit in on spaces where I'm not the center, and I'm, the, I'm not the normative person in the room. My experience is not normative. And I get to listen and have the benefit of hearing other people's experiences. And the person that I think embodies that the most in Christianity, um, so far in my research in the post-evangelical world, was Rachel Held Evans. And I'm sure, I know Erin talked about Rachel a couple weeks ago, the weekend she died. Um, and 
What's interesting and amazing about Rachel is that her work and her legacy really stands as this idea of the call to be intersectional means to bring other people up with you, to elevate the voices of other people. And everything about her work really did that and really engaged with that. So in the course of the last couple of weeks since her death, you can check the hashtag because of H R H E and lots of people are talking about how they would never be speaking and would never have the credibility and the um, space that she had, that they have without Rachel. Um, I don't know if anybody knows who Sean King is. Yeah, um, the, the former pastor, now super justice warrior, um, who has reconstructed the North Star, which is a paper that was originally founded by Marcus Garvey, if I remember correctly, in the turn of the century. And there, he's reconstructed it as a new form of activism. Um, but Sean King tweeted about the fact that he would not have, uh, would not be speaking as publicly as he had if Rachel hadn't used her positionality to give him a voice. And that's true for a lot of people. Um, even people who did not connect with her, did not agree with her, who have some ethics, like ethicists from the Southern Baptist Convention, and I very rarely speak well about the Southern Baptist Convention, um, but Russell Moore, who is the ethicist for the Southern Baptist Convention, said, I was on the other side of her Twitter indignations many times, but I respected her because she was never a phony. Even in her dissent, she made all of us think and helped those of us who were theologically conservatives be better because of the way she would challenge us. Um, and then, yeah. So Rachel Held Evans really was an embodiment of, I think, the best of feminism and how feminism connects with Christianity in that way. Um, yeah. Um, so I think what I'm going to do is offer up, you guys can ask questions, because um, my brain is really tired. And I don't know if I'm being clear, but I'm really good at answering questions about things like feminism, about evangelicalism, post-evangelicalism, gender and sexuality within that. So if it's cool, you can ask me questions. Um, so I have probably been deconstructing, deconstruction meaning um, the dismantling of the faith tradition in which you grew up in and the notions of truth in which that um, community and context holds as central. Um, and it can be the stated truth or it can be the unstated truth. Um, for me, a lot of it's the unstated, sub, sub, subtle truths or the way in which those stated truths have been malformed. Um, so early on, I grew up in a family that has a lot of missionaries. So I knew a lot about apartheid growing up. Um, and that, those things like um, growing up with apartheid and hearing my aunt and uncle who were missionaries in Africa talk about this unjust system in South Africa. Um, was one of the things that I think began my deconstruction, was this notion of uh, the South African government used God to justify this action. Um, 
and then getting into you know, elementary school, junior high, high school, and having friends who are gay, and growing up in a community that's like, well, that's not okay, and my experience of my friends coming out and actually being out and not hiding themselves and not going through conversion therapy and, and not um, sitting there helped. Um, also, the fact that some of those friends felt like they had to choose between God and their sexuality, which I'm sure Candace is gonna talk about in two weeks. Um, there was a part of me that was like, well, that's, that, shouldn't, that shouldn't happen. Like, that doesn't make sense. Um, and then my freshman year of college, I took a church history class. Yeah, church history class, and I had to write a research paper. So I wrote on the Southern Baptist Convention and how in 1968, in um, response to the feminist movement, they decided to renege 430 women's ordinations across the globe because they were in the beginning of a fundamentalist takeover and they didn't want to figure out a way to deal with women being in leadership. So they just pulled all the ordinations. Um, which I was like, what in the world? You people are dumb. Um, at that same time, I started to read liberation theology, which is a theology that comes from um, South America. It comes out of really the populist movements in South America that are based in um, church. It's very akin to the civil rights movement here in the US. Um, it also has a lot of Marxist theory built into it in terms of class and social structures because of some of the hierarchies of money and power within um, specifically Argentina and Brazil and some of the places that this comes out. So I started reading liberation theology and that makes a whole lot more sense to me, right? Um, and then I go to grad school for the first time and I'm sitting in a class called, what is it called? Something about community and we had to read these different books um, one of which was The Kite Runner, one was The Velvet Rage, which is a book about um, a man growing up gay in the U.S. One was Nickeled and Dimed in America, which has to deal with class issues and the fact that, you know, um, since the 70s, people's salaries haven't grown at all, um, but things keep getting more expensive, and so we're actually moving towards this cultural context where people don't have enough money to live, even though, you know, we work, millennials specifically work potentially three jobs um, and run like crazy, and you work harder than your parents did at their 40 year, 40 a week salaried positions, but you don't make enough money to live. Um, and so we're sitting in this class, and part of the component of the class was having speakers come in. So we have a panel of speakers. Um, some of them are liberal. Some of the, we have um, a woman who's a Muslim. We have a Jewish rabbi. We have um, a couple pastors, some on the more liberal side, some on the more conservative side. And we have the head of the Christian Coalition in Washington State. And he looks at us and he's telling us these stories. And he says, you know, the funny thing is, when I have, was it, I think it was Mormons or Seventh-day Adventists, and they come to my house and I sit with them and I talk with them, and I just think, wow, you're all going to hell. <laughs> and then he proceeds to tell our whole class that because um, people in our student body, and some of us are queer affirming, our student body president at the time was an out gay woman, that we were all going to hell. So I leave class that night, I'm driving home, 
And the first time I ever consciously remember thinking, if this is God, I want absolutely nothing to do with God. If this man represents the wholeness of God, I, I'm done, I'm out. Like, this is ridiculous. Um, so I have this thought, I call my dad, who is conservative, and has done massive damage to me throughout my life, um, but it has his moments, and he goes, well, that's not God, though. You know, that's not God. Um, so that's point number one. And then I go on to grad school again, and I sit in class in Fuller, and are with much more conservative people than my um, previous class that this happened to, and keep having that question, but keep getting invited back into spaces where um, people like Aaron and my friend Barry Taylor offer a vision of God that is not that. Um, and I get to hang out with people like my friends at Level Ground who are offering space for people to explore God. Um, and so it's this long, slow burn trajectory where I read various things and I encounter various things and I study church history and I study the history of evangelicalism and I realize that these things that are being called solid, historical, long-term religious things were created less than 150 years ago. Um, what evangelicals hold to as their key points of truth were written by a bunch of white dudes in Pasadena in 1915. Um, and the way in which they understand, I don't know if anybody else has this rapture trauma. Anybody else grow up in that context, watching Left Behind and shit? Sorry, I just swore. Um, that notion of the end times was created by some really bad scholarship that began in 1850 and was picked up by people in the 70s and like championed, and then they infiltrated it throughout all of Christianity, um, at least in Western culture, most of us who grew up in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. What you got in terms of, you know, revelation is a bunch of BS. So that's kind of been my trajectory, is like actually going back and looking at the things. And um, currently in my program, I have scholars who really make us look at the text. And if you start looking at the text, like really looking at the text, not what the old pastor at your church told you was the text, you find that the text is a lot different and there's a lot more going on and there's a lot of the stuff that they say is key that's not. And there's a lot of stuff that, if you start looking at social justice and liberation theology and stuff, is primary in the text. Does that answer the question? Okay, anybody else have questions? Yeah. Sure. Um, so my relationship to scripture, I am not a literalist. <laughs> um, I live with somebody who can read the language in the primary form. I can't. I suck at languages. I'm struggling through my German class right now, even though I have five years of German. Um, so it changes because I don't think that your English translation is the accurate translation. It's really hard to get an accurate translation. Um, but there are translations that are better that help you kind of have a nuance of the text. Um, so the um, new revised standard version is a really good one to pick up. Your NIV is a really bad one to pick up. Um, it's written for a seventh grader and there's a lot of nuance that's lacking. 
Um, so I'm not a literalist. I also hold more of an Episcopalian notion of the text, which means that I look at the whole trajectory of it as a narrative. And I look at it in terms of each, um, each section is a different type of writing, right? So you don't read something like Daniel or Revelation like you read a letter in Paul because apocalyptical literature has certain tropes in the way that epistolary or letter writing literature has certain tropes. Um, I find more I gravitate to pockets of the Psalms. I gravitate to stories like Jephthah's daughter, which anybody know Jephthah's daughter? Yeah, so yeah. But I gravitate to stories like Jephthah's daughter because that hits at the work that I'm doing. You know, Jephthah's daughter, if you don't know, is the story in Judges. Most people probably skip over Judges, which is fine. Um, where this guy, he's like a religious guy, makes a pact to God, right? And he says, the first thing, if I win this battle, the first thing that comes out of my house, I will sacrifice to you. He has one child. It's a daughter. She is the first thing that comes out of his house. And unlike Isaac, where God brings a little lamb to be killed, Jephthah's daughter is murdered for her father's foolishness. And I think those stories, if we read them in community and talked about them in community, or the fact that Joseph is the only rape story that doesn't happen in the text, if we start talking about those, that changes how we look at life, right? We have to start asking, why is there no provision for the girls? Why is it that every rape story in the text, except for Joseph, happens? And why do two of them happen in such a way that the women are killed? Why is it that we allow women and children to be desecrated? So I think that's how it changes how I look at the text. Um, it also makes me more interested in reading Psalm of Psalms, and it makes me very disgruntled sitting in most churches. Does that answer the question? Okay. Anybody else? I can talk about pop culture too if you want. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, yes. Um, the people don't like using female pronouns for God because it makes them think about it is gendered, but so is man. They just are so used to using he, just like mankind. You know. Do we? I mean, a lot of people now, at least academically and in more progressive circles, use humankind 
because humankind removes that man aspect, right? Um, I personally um, started using they, them pronouns and um, God and God's self. Um, part of it was because academically I didn't want to use he pronouns and having to switch between genders was clunky writing and so using they, them or um, God and God's self does X, Y, and Z felt a lot less clunkier than being like God as he, she, or it. Because um, that's kind of awkward. I mean, we're one of the few languages that doesn't have gender, uh, well, yeah, but also doesn't have gender connotations before words. Um, so we're not used to that in our language. It sounds funny in our mouths. Um, I think, I think addressing the fact that, yeah, it does gender God, and it makes you uncomfortable because we don't want to think about God with a vagina. We don't want to think about the vagina of God, which if you want to read some really cool, interesting stuff about God's vagina, um, read Thomas Altizer, who's a deconstructing, who wrote Death of God, the big, like, you've seen the, I'm sure you've seen probably the time picture when the book came out. It's red. It says, God is dead which is hilarious because Altizer actually believes in God and this resurrecting God perpetually. So he doesn't actually believe that God dies long-term. Anyways, um, that's a whole nother side thing. Um, but I think asking them why they feel uncomfortable, like really, really being curious, I think will get you a long way and being like, well, why are you worried about God's penis? Like, does it bother you that God has a penis if we call God male? Or are we, are we so used to, you know, um, big blue penises and things like that, that we're desensitized to it? Um, I also personally think using gender queer terms for me makes the most sense for God because it's a way to remind myself that God is gender queer in a lot of the text. God flips between male and female notions and constructions. Um, it'll really piss off a lot of like conservatives if you say that, because <laughs> God is male and God is white. Um, and I think reading people who talk about that, like if you want to read a lot of um, womanist theologians or, or womanist and black scholars who study religion, they talk about the fact that the way in which Jesus and God in, in some of these apocalyptical texts are described, He's not white. He's not white at all. And Jesus was a Jewish man, a Arab Jewish man, who's probably gonna get arrested by our government if he showed up here in that look because he looks like what they personify a terrorist to look like. So yeah, I think, I think just being curious gets you a long way and finding what you feel comfortable with. And I think allowing yourself the space to change that. Like, it may feel really comfortable for a while to use female pronouns. And then at some point you're gonna, maybe you'll go, oh, you know, this doesn't feel, this feels like narrowing too. So maybe I'll use this, you know? I think even how, I've had a progression of how I like talk about even God because the phrase God is problematic. So sometimes with some of my friends, I'll use God, the universe, consciousness, whatever, however you feel. Because I think the biggest thing from a Christ-like stance is to be radically loving and radically hospitable. And I would say, 
Paul, for as bad as Paul can be at points, Paul in the Mars Hill Address, which is this conversation in Romans about a deity to the unknown God, he's always moving towards, how can I be more hospitable? How can I talk to you in a way that's comfortable for you, not in a way that prioritizes um, my status, if you have power? Now, I want to make an asterisk. If you have power, that's the move that you make. If you don't have power, then don't ask people to do work that they shouldn't have to do. Make sense? Is that helpful? Okay. Questions? Anymore? I can start throwing out pop culture references. Well, thank you so much, Jesse. Thank you for being here. Yeah.